everyone. Well, welcome. Uh, this evening, I'm so glad uh, that you've joined us um, for service tonight. Uh, we are finishing up the book of Philippians. We've spent the last eight weeks here, and uh, tonight we're covering the last 13 verses. Uh, this letter uh, has been a wonderful journey for me. I, I, it's been impactful. It's been challenging. I've really been shaped by these last eight weeks uh, going through this. And, and I've heard from many of you that the same is true, um, that you have been impacted and shaped by uh, the words of this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. I, I can't help but think about how um, each message, each time that we've opened this up uh, on Thursday nights and, and we've spent time diving into it and then the week that follows, whether we're walking through it um, or while I've been walking through it um, the following week, the passage that was covered and truly God's word is, is sharper than any double-edged sword. Penetrating, uh, dividing uh, our hearts <laughs> from the things that should be there and the things that I shouldn't, you know, it's been, it's been really getting in there. It's getting into the meat of things, the, the heart stuff. And it's been so, so good um, for me. And I know for many of you. So we finish up before um, we jump in, starting at verse 10 is where we're going to be. Chapter four, verse 10. Um, I just want to encourage you as we move on from this book, I hope you don't. I hope the things that um, God has stirred and triggered in you over this time that you'd come back to, that you'd return to. Maybe go back over this past eight weeks and go back and rewatch a message. Go back and um, look at that particular passage again and journal out the things that God has shown you over this time. Be a good steward. Be the good soil for what God has planted, what the seeds that God has spread over the course of these last eight weeks. If it lands and gets robbed away, what good is that? If you watched and you said, oh, amen, amen, Brian, whichever one of us it was, don't let it remain at that. Let it, let it produce a fruit. Let it become something more than just a good moment that happened, but something that changes and transforms your life moving forward, that you might be more like Christ, that you might be better equipped to live in love like Jesus. That's the goal in all of this. And I hope you hear that as I preach through, as we go through these last 13 verses, I hope you hear that same message of be the good soil. Be the good soil. So if you have your Bible, crack it open with me. We're going to be Philippians 4, uh, starting at verse 10. That's where we're going to start tonight. So here we go. Paul writes this, verse 10, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, Paul, of course, is writing to the Philippian church, and he's referring, as we'll find out, um, to... Uh, a gift that they gave, a way that they sent supplies and things to help him in his need. They showed their concern for him. They expressed it. And he's thanking them. He's rejoicing in God um, for the gift that he received from them. Now, when I thought about this, there's something that kind of came to mind. Uh, have you ever had that friend that lives far away? You know, like, like, 
like there may be someone you grew up with or something like that, or maybe you went to school with, um, but now life has just kind of moved you different directions or literally like physical locations or something like that. And so you just don't see them that often, maybe once or twice a year. You, you just don't talk that often for some reason, but, but they're on your mind a lot. They come to mind, they're, they're on your heart often, way more often than, than you interact with them. It just doesn't work out to see them or something like that. You know what I'm talking about? Like that sort of friend. And there's distance there. But, but when you do see them, when you do talk with them, you're so happy and so encouraged. Like in that moment, your concern for one another is renewed and refreshed. It's brought forth again in a new way. It's been there all along. They've been on your mind. But one of you took the initiative to drive or to fly or whatever it is, to write a letter, to pick up the phone and make a call. And that act of service, that pursuit, blesses and renews both of you. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you have that friend. I think that's kind of what Paul's saying here in, in some way, a, maybe a lesser way than what he's really getting at, what they did for him. You know, they've been apart and surely distance and communication was more difficult back then, like seriously way more difficult back then. But the opportunities to express one's concern for each other was a lot more complicated than it is for us today. And so probably the Philippians had been thinking about Paul. They, he'd been on their mind. They'd been thinking about him often, praying for him. Till one of them just finally said, you know, you know what? We should just reach out to Paul. We're talking about him. We're thinking about him. We care for him. Let's just reach out to him. Let's, let's get together what we can and send it to him and help him. And so they send Epaphroditus, one of their own, their friend, and they generously gave what they could to help provide for Paul's needs while he was in house arrest. And what they gave probably wasn't very much. You know, we, we know from the letter that they had needs themselves. They had challenges themselves, significant but they gave what they could. And Paul's so thankful. He's thankful. As Brian mentioned last week about rejoicing, the, the idea he, he rejoices, he delights in God's grace. God's grace expressed through the Philippians and their concern for him. He rejoices in it. It's like when that phone rings, right? And when you turn to see who's calling it, it's that friend, that far off friend. Like if you've ever been, I don't know, you're sitting around at home. Maybe it's like watching some random TV show. You're just on the couch, whatever, you got your chips. And like your phone rings, you're kind of like, oh. And you're like, oh, it's, Don it's Donnie. Oh, man. Sorry, I got to get this. Pause the show. Whatever, whatever it is, you're like, it's Donnie. Just the idea that they would call delights you and makes you so happy. You're like, I got to get this, man. I got to answer this. It's Donnie. I would use Donnie because that's a friend I haven't talked to in a while. I should call him. Uh, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's one of those people for me that's often on my mind. There's a few of them. There's quite a few. There's a lot, actually. Maybe I need to reach out more often and express my care and concern for them. I know it blesses both of us when one of us has done that. So... Paul's saying, you know, there's concern has been there for the Philippians. They have been concerned about him. And, and now the opportunity to express that concern has been exercised. 
He writes, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I want to take a little bit of a tangent, uh, similar in a way to what Brian did last week, but it still fits within this passage. It certainly fits within the context of our lives right now. In these past weeks, racism has captivated our nation's attention. You can't deny that. No one can deny that. The issue of racism has again been dragged out to center stage. Because it must be. Because it has to be. Because healing comes through confrontation. Like the wound that, that never heals. And continues to nag and fester and just get worse because you haven't dealt with it. You haven't healed it. You haven't scrubbed it free of the infection or whatever's there. Racism and its resulting suffering has been brought to bear on a national stage. It's been brought to bear on a local level in this neighborhood, in your town, I'm sure. If you don't live here, I'm sure wherever you live, It's there. It's been brought out. It's been brought forth. It's been brought forward. And it has to be wrestled with and contended with and dealt with. It's been brought forth likely on a relational level for you. Amongst your friends. Relatives. And perhaps. And I hope. I hope. The light shed on this wound. Has scavenged your own heart. Has, has brought you to a place where you and the Holy Spirit are sifting your own thoughts and attitudes, figuring out what's going on there. You know, I know, I know for some of you, for many of you, this scavenging of your heart is not new because you live it every day. You walk it every day because of the color of your skin. Paul writes, you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. In this situation, there has been opportunity. There has been. Maybe there hasn't always been concern. Are you honest about that? Are you honest about it? For many, these protests are an opportunity to express care and concern for one another. The protests are an opportunity to scrub that wound and get the dirt out, get the infection out, and to build on the hope, the hope that this wound can heal. It can heal, even if it's a painful process to do so. Often healing is. And for Amy and I, as we've seen all of this, we've weighed the opportunities we have to show our concern. And honestly, I've had concern developed in me. 
Concern that wasn't there before. So now how am I gonna how am I gonna show that? That's been a wrestling for us. That's been a wrestling for me. Okay, there is concern. There is concern, deep concern. What is the most important opportunity I have to express that concern? Not just what is urgent, not just what is urgent, but what is most important? What is the most important response I can have? I wonder if many of you could be asking that same question. Maybe you feel like there's, there's only two opportunities. You, you, can, you can post things on social media or you can go to a protest. And maybe that feels like those are the only recognized uh, things you can do. And probably because they are the only recognized things you can do, at least in this moment. But they're not the only thing you can do. Maybe not even the most important thing you could do. Maybe you feel the weight of urgency to act. I have to act and I have to act now because of all that's going on. But, but urgent and important aren't always the same thing. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they absolutely are. But not always. You know, one thing that's really important is sincerity. Sincerity is really important. The thing that comes to mind to kind of exemplify this a little bit is like, it's just the first thing that came to mind. It's not perfect, but it's like the girlfriend who just keeps chirping about when is he going to propose? When is he going to, why hasn't he proposed yet? You know what I'm talking about? And, and like, there is definitely a place for that question. It's warranted. It's not ingenuine uh, to ask such a question at times. Definitely not. It may be necessary. Like, come on, like, it's been six years, dude. If you don't, if you don't know yet, like, like, <laughs> come on, man. Like, there's places where this is definitely warranted. But however long it's been, however long she's been waiting, I think she would value the sincerity of the proposal over the timeliness of it. And I don't say that in reference to our societal response, but to yours, to you. Is there sincerity in your response? So while some things seem urgent, don't let that urgency distract you from doing something important. Maybe it's the protest. Maybe it's the protest. It, it very well could be, and that is important. You know, social media statements, that's, that could be a part of it. But it's also relationships. It's conversations. It's, it's education. It's, it's listening. It's listening to others. And it's self-reflection. It's rooting out racism within yourself. It's hunting for it. It's parenting. <laughs> how are you raising or how are you going to raise your children? 
your kids? It's prayer. You know, the YA prayer group, we have a team of people who pray diligently and sincerely. And that group picked a day and time to pray and intercede specifically for the protests and this issue of racism and seeking God to see his kingdom reign where the devil's schemes for division and, and hatred have been thriving. And so maybe, maybe it's picking a time every day, every week, to pray into this area of racism and racial reconciliation. Whatever action you take, I, I want to challenge you with three questions that I've been challenged with. The three questions that I've been asking myself as I've been navigating this. And maybe they're helpful for you. I hope they are. Um, but this is what I've been wrestling with. The first one. Are the roots as deep as the branches are long? What I mean by this is, is it just lip service? For as far as those branches, those words will reach out into the world, have they penetrated your own life? Will they last beyond this moment in your heart and life? Or will it just shrivel up and die in short order like a Christmas tree? Right? Like rootless and on display, though death has already begun. Are the roots as deep as the branches are long? For the things you're thinking about, the response, the expression of care you might give. Second, is it unifying? And unity, this isn't about uh, agreeableness. It's not about being agreeable. A lot of things Jesus said were not very agreeable. <laughs> they were pretty unsettling and pretty uncomfortable, actually. <laughs> but what they did do is they brought the truth to bear in such a way so that unity could be achieved. It's about unity. Is it unifying? And lastly, does it come from faith, hope, and love? You know, faith is our, our trust in God, the, the anchoring of your identity and what he says about you. you know, black, brown, he says he loves you. He says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Faith is our trust in God and believing him to be supreme and therefore what he says to be true because it is. It is true about us, about you, and about whatever other people are on the other side of where you might be. Hope, hope is our, our longing for what could be, the life and peace and unity that God intends us and bids us to come enjoy. Hope is, is for the racist person on the other side. It's, it's for, it's for the, the racist person to see the air in their ways and repent and be united with the whole of humanity as God created us to be, intended us to be. Hope is, is for the rioters to have their anger soothed and for you to participate in seeing that accomplished. Hope is, is for the one, uh, maybe you, who feels overwhelmed. Like, 
Like you, you're just helpless and useless in this arena. You're not. Hope is constructive, not destructive. Hope strives for what could be and believes it to be on its way. Believes it to be on its way. And finally, love. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, we're told this is the greatest of all. And it's the one that lasts beyond this lifetime. You see, when, when faith and hope have been realized and we're face to face with God, when, when all we've believed for has been achieved because we're there with him, love continues on. Love continues to grow and thrive because we're in the presence of the Lord. The greatest is love. So I want to give you this rubric, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. I'll just read it. You probably know it. If you've been to a wedding, you kind of know it. <laughs> or a church, I guess. Or listen to a sermon I've ever preached. <laughs> I, I reference it a lot. This is our rubric. That love is patient. Love is long-suffering. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. That is our, that is our rubric. I just want to call out the temptation I have in my own heart and maybe you have in yours. Don't get caught up in using this rubric, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 10. Don't, don't get caught up in using this to condemn another person when you haven't applied it to yourself first. It's a plank and speck kind of thing. <laughs> Jesus had strong words for that. For some of you, you see protests becoming riots, and so you immediately step back from association with the protests or what the protests are about, and, or you find yourself condemning the protests, any protest, because uh, there have been riots. And, and I want to challenge you. Don't abandon showing concern for others because you wouldn't do it like that. Okay, okay, if not like that, then how, how are you doing it? Not how would you, but how are you? How are you doing it? How are you taking the opportunities you have to express concern for the suffering of others in our community and in our nation? This is important, not because I say it is, not because anyone else does, not because someone has posted something magnificent or very convincing. This is important because Jesus says it's important. The suffering of others is our concern and our burden because Jesus models for us the humility. That's what chapter two of this whole letter was about, the humility and self-sacrifice to take on another person's burden. And he says, go and do likewise. So, if you are concerned, what opportunities are you taking to show it? What opportunities are you taking to show it? Are they the most important ones? All right, back to our passage, I guess. 
So, Paul has been telling the Philippians. He's actually celebrating God's grace expressed through their concern for him. He's celebrating their self-sacrifice, their generosity to come alongside him in his imprisonment for the gospel. He continues into verse 11 through 13. And this section here, Philippians 4.13, you've maybe heard it before. It's one of the most quoted, probably, and possibly uh, misrepresented scriptures. Possibly. <laughs> Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You know, last week, Brian Howard referenced the introduction of chapter and verse numbers to the scriptures. He talked about it and how, how chapter numbers and verses and all of that, they're not a part of the original text, but, but were added after the fact so that study and discussion of the scriptures is more, more easily done. Well, sometimes uh, they can influence how we read or interpret a passage and and that could be the case here with Philippians 4.13, and that may not be a good thing. Um, so let's, let's read, starting with verse 10. We'll start at verse 10 and make our way down to verse 13. We're going to look at it one whole section, all right? So start, let's start with verse 10, verse 10, and then we'll go into verse 11. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Verse 11, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So now you've heard it in its fullness and, and kind of what it's a part of the whole section, not just that verse on its own. Uh, but often verse 13 is interpreted in isolation from the verses that have come before it. And therefore, it's applied a little willy-nilly. <laughs> like, definitely willy-nilly. <laughs> I think we've all heard it before. Like, you've heard it or you've seen it in different ways. In fact, I believe, uh, I think by the numbers, it's like the the most popular verse to have in a social media bio. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it is. So people are fond of this verse, and for good reason, and for good reason. But sometimes uh, the ways we apply it can go a little bit astray. And, and maybe, maybe it's the case for you, and that's okay. That's why I'm talking about it. So we can, we can all get to a better place in understanding what the scriptures really say. So... Uh, Maybe you've heard it applied in these ways. This is kind of the way it's often applied. I've got a few examples here. I can do all things through him who gives me strength, such as I can beat the other team. <laughs> I can beat the other team. I can set a personal record. I, this next meet, I will be the best I've ever been. Or I'll at least be better than them because you know what? God will strengthen me to do so. Yes, indeed, he will. Yes, he did, he will. Maybe it's, uh, I can play the guitar like Julian. <laughs> Maybe. 
See, this is a little hard because Julian Travis was actually playing guitar tonight, but I thought Julian was going to be, Julian was playing bass, didn't really work out. So basically, basically, um, it's okay, this miscommunication, sometimes these things happen. But you might be saying, or people might apply this, like, I could play guitar like Julian or Travis, both magnificent guitar players. Well, you probably can't. (laughs) You probably can't, honestly. Those guys are really good at it. They're really good at it. But... But if you can't, that doesn't mean that God has failed to keep his promise that he made to you with this verse. Maybe you've heard it or maybe you've applied it like this. I can or I will get an A on that paper. Or I will get that promotion because God will make me capable of it. Maybe you've heard it used that way. Maybe you've fallen into using it that way. Or I will have the best sales numbers in the office because Christ will equip me to do so. This isn't unfamiliar, maybe, uh, to hear it applied like this. It's tempting. It's where we want to go with it because it sounds so nice. I think this would be familiar to most people who've been around Christians or paid attention to the sports world. But maybe... You yourself has understood it like this. I know at times I have. I have until I had someone talk through things like this with me. And it was helpful. And so that's why I'm doing it with you. At the heart of it, the way uh, we could kind of rephrase all of those into this one statement. This is really what we're saying or how we're viewing this verse is this. I can do whatever. Fill in the blank. Because the goals I have are the goals God has for me. And therefore, he will strengthen me to accomplish them. The goals I have are the goals God has for me. And therefore, he will strengthen me to accomplish my goals. But this is just wrong theology. This is wrong theology. Not just wrong interpretation. It's wrong theology. Like like it's corrupted thinking to think God serves your goals. God doesn't serve your goals. To be straightforward, God's goals for you are his goals for you, not your own. His goals are about love and justice and truth and redemption, not dollar signs and trophies. His goals for you are good for you. They're better than even those things you think like playing guitar like Julian or Travis. His goals are better for you than that. His goals are deeper for you than that, much deeper. God's goals for you are his goals for you. You know, kind of the way we should look at it, at least theologically in this way, is he will equip you for things. He will equip you for things. He is going to. We, we have that. that He's going to equip you for things. He will enable you and strengthen you to accomplish things. But that equipping and strengthening is for the advancement of his kingdom, not your own. The advancement of his kingdom, not your own. And even still, that isn't even what this passage is about. It's still not what this passage is about. Because in in the context of this letter, in this section, it's clear that what Paul is referring to is uncertainty and change and the suffering associated with that. So I'll read it again, starting at verse 11. 
all the way through 13. Take it all in together here. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So Paul's like, I can be up, down, left, right, sideways, and still be stable because Christ is my strength. God is my stronghold and my rock, as David puts it in Psalm 18. Now, this whole letter, if you go back and look through it and, and listen to the sermons and read through it yourself, the book of Philippians, you see this whole letter has been declaring the reality and value of clinging to Christ above all other things. And this is another trumpet blast about the supremacy of Christ and what the life of one who properly places him at the center looks like. In all circumstances, we can be content. We can be steady. Though the world gets flipped upside down, having Christ as our foundation, our rock, we continue uh, on pursuing and proclaiming those things that are, that are true and noble and praiseworthy and right and pure and lovely and admirable. No matter what else assails us, we can continue on in those things. As we'll see in verse 22, Paul's circumstances and his surroundings in house arrest and in many other situations, but in this one in particular, did not knock him off balance from what his purpose and his calling was. He preached the gospel. He loved people. He fought for what was true and right. Contentment and stability in the Lord is not synonymous with silence or agreeableness, but with action. But with action, contentment doesn't mean sitting in a couch somewhere doing nothing. Contentment means moving out confidently, unwaveringly. Commitment looks like this. Commitment in God, contentment, sorry, contentment in God looks like this. Consistent and persistent love for God expressed through obedience to him and love for others no matter the circumstances. I think of the Good Samaritan who, who in an unexpected life-complicating circumstance that caught him off guard, he did not turn a blind eye to the suffering of another. No, he turned to the wounded traveler. He goes to him, he kneels with him, he lifts him up. He saw him and he loved him with action. No matter Paul's circumstances, whether well-fed or hungry, living in need or in plenty, Paul found his strength, his stability in Christ so that he may be consistent and steadfast in his rejoicing in God, in his loving, in his serving others, in his trust in God's love and provision for whatever lies ahead. Paul's strength in all things was his hope in Christ his hope and trust in Christ. That all he needed, he had or would receive from Christ. Because Jesus is king and Jesus loves him and sees him and would care for him. And so 
Paul's witness to the world and those around him did not waver when his life was threatened. It did not waver when his belly was empty, nor did it waver when his money bag was full and his friends surrounded him. His trust, his hope, his security, his stability were always found in Christ. And so his contentment is not based on external circumstances. And whatever he accomplished was not about him because it was the strength of Christ, the work of Christ in him that did it. I think a key part of this is that for Paul, and I, and I pray for, uh, that this would be for all of us, myself included, Jesus was more than ethereal, more than theology. Jesus, for Paul, is his friend. Jesus is his, his benefactor. Jesus is his example, his, his redeemer. Jesus is his strength. Jesus is his Lord. Jesus isn't a concept. He's a person. Paul walked with that, walked with him. And so he was strong. He was content no matter what came his way, no matter what life threw at him. So Paul says like, I'm so thankful. I rejoice in God that you cared for me and expressed that care for me through your generosity. He's telling the Philippians this. Yet I've learned to live in the contentment of whatever Jesus provides me. And we pick up in verse 14. He writes this. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you, the Philippians, know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once and I, when I was in need. Verse 17, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Verse 19, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, it was good it was good for you guys to have done this and sent this gift. It was good for you to have done this. And then he continues to recount their past generosity and, and the exquisiteness of that generosity, the uniqueness, the beauty of it, of that expression of their faith in God. And that's the key thing here that, that Paul is rejoicing in. He's rejoicing in the expression and evidence of God's kingdom manifesting in the hearts and lives of the Philippians. That's what he's most excited about. I think that's the desire of every preacher. To see the work of God in the lives of the people they serve. To see God transforming. To see God working. To see people live out in ways that they would not have before they met Christ. To see them view the world through the eyes Jesus views the world. To see them view other people through the same eyes that Jesus views other people. 
and to trust Jesus as Paul himself here trusts Jesus. You know, I love verse 17. He's just straightforward. I'm not after your gifts. Like, like I'm not after more gifts. I'm thankful for them, but I am not pursuing them. That's not what I'm after in, in, in expressing my gratitude here. Right? He's like, I desire fruit that may abound to your benefit. That you may be enabled to make such good use of your worldly possessions that you may give an account of them to God with joy. I want you to go before the Lord and be able to say, God, I have honored you with all that I am. And joyfully present that to him. That's what he longs for them to be able to do. And that's what he's encouraging them with, that, that you've been doing that. And your gifts, your incredible generosity in your needs, still being generous towards someone like me, is to your account. You're going to be able to do that. You're going to be able to stand. This is evidence that you will be able to stand before God and joyfully give account of what you've done with all he's given you. It's an encouragement. It is not in any way a design to draw more from them. And he flatly says that. But to encourage them that such exercise of benevolence pleases God and honors Christ. See, it's not about who they gave to or how much they gave. But the fact they were willing and joyful givers. You know, when, when Sarah comes up before service and, and mentions, hey, if you'd like to give, if you'd like to contribute to the, this church and how we operate, here's a way to do it. You know why we encourage giving here? Because God encourages giving. Because Jesus models, exemplifies, he defines what generosity looks like. And if we're going to be people who live and love like him, if we're going to be people who follow after him, we have to have that heart of generosity. So maybe you're giving here. Yes, please, if this is your church, if this is where you're a part of, then please contribute to the work that this church is doing in serving Christ and serving others and serving those in need. But ultimately, that is not our goal. Our goal is not to get you to give here. It's but for you to give anywhere, to give generously, to have a generous heart that lets go of the things of this world, recognizing you're not taking them with you. And at some point, you're going to have to give an account to God. And what kind of an account are you going to give to him? Did you see the least, the last, and the lost? Did you care for the person in prison, the, the, the person who has, is disadvantaged? Did you care for the, the person on the side of the road like the good Samaritan? Or did you walk by blind-eyed? At some point, we're going to give an account. And our longing is that you, we, all of us, myself included, would be seeing Jesus transform my heart, that I have a generous heart, a mentality that, that is willing to humbly set myself aside for the sake of another person. To honor God with what he's given me. The heart of generosity, which Christ so exemplifies and defines, was growing and overflowing in the Philippians. And, and Paul's so pumped on that. <laughs> he's so pumped. And that is what is beautiful and praiseworthy about their gift. Not the size of it, not that they gave it to him, but that they were giving. That they were following after Christ and doing what Christ does. Like the good Samaritan who generously 
uh, out of generosity is willing to be vulnerable for the sake of others. Such willing vulnerability for the sake of others pleases God. So I have two questions for you out of this. Just two questions to ask yourself, questions I'm asking myself. Is the fruit of God's work in you evidenced by your generosity? And second, do you make such good use of your worldly possessions that you could give an account of them to God with joy? So Paul wraps up uh, this whole letter, verses 20 through 23 here. He wraps it up with a a short prayer and, and then a greeting. And he starts in verse 20. He says this, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Then in 21, Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. And God's people here send greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. It's how he ends the letter. It's how he sends them off. But verse 22 stands out especially. Even Paul's imprisonment has advanced the gospel. The gospel has infiltrated Caesar's household. It's infiltrated his his servants and his staff. And that's the evidence of a man who is consistent and persistent, content in Christ no matter his circumstances. That that the, the eternal, unshakable kingdom of God continues to advance in and through his life no matter what's going on around him. So I leave you off with this. We're left with this. In all things, Prize Jesus above everything else. Live as he lived, humbly seeking to care for others and to lift them up. Love God, love others, and to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.